0: Today on Know the Truth, we see that Christ was deeply concerned about the purity of his church in the book of Revelation.
1: Listen to these words by Steve Lawson. Do you hate weeds more in your neighbor's yard or in your own? Of course you hate them especially in your own yard. Do you hate cancer more in your neighbor's family or in your own family? You hate to see it in any family, but especially in your own. In the same way, Christ especially hates sin in his own spiritual family more so than in the world.
0: People have all sorts of opinions about Jesus' identity. Some say he was a moral philosopher or a great teacher. But can we really reduce his identity to a man's imagination? What does the Bible teach? Well, on Know the Truth, we've been enjoying a study from Philip de Corsi in Revelation called You've Got Mail. In it, John, the author of Revelation, gives us one of the most dramatic depictions in all the Bible of our Lord's power and glory. You'll find related resources online at ktt.org. But now to begin our message, titled Holy Terror, Part 2, here's Philip.
1: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation, Chapter 1. We're in an exposition of uh, Revelation 1 through 3, and uh, we're going to take a look at our Lord's Letters. To the churches in Asia Minor. But before we get there, there's a vision given to John that sets the whole context for the letters themselves. In fact, parts of this description of Christ that we're about to read will be um, laced throughout the letters themselves. And uh, it's so important that you and I get a vision of the Christ who stands amidst the candlesticks the one who um, both protects and purifies his church in this age. Now, I don't know about you, but I often uh, squirm and cringe when I see a picture of Jesus on the cover of a magazine like Time or Newsweek. And the reason I get nervous is because I know that after they have analyzed, dissected, and, and looked at Christ, they strip him of his deity and they rob him of his glory. By the time the writers and editors are done, a new script of Christ's life and legacy emerges, one in which he is a remarkable man, but still a man. One in which um, he's an object of fascination and historical curiosity, but certainly not a figure to be adored or worshiped. One in which he tells and teaches truth but is not the sole source of truth, which was his own claim in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the truth. In the end, a new narrative of Jesus is presented and it's detached from the biblical record. And we're left with a Christ who does not qualify to be our savior and certainly does not warrant our worship. Our society through these magazine articles and TV documentaries are left with a cut and paste version of Jesus Christ. One writer has said this, Americans apparently want Christ, but they don't want him straight. And that's not a new phenomena. That's not a modern trend. In fact, that's why Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, took a pair of scissors one day and hacked at his King James Bible by the time he was finished, there was no virgin birth. There was no miracles. Christ had been stripped of his deity. There was no resurrection. And he cut and pasted the version of the Lord Jesus and presented it in a new Bible, in a new New Testament called the philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, in a letter to a friend in 1819, William Short, Jefferson says this, that um, the cut and paste job was the work of two or three nights only at Washington DC after getting through his evening task of reading the letters and papers of the day. In fact, here's what Jefferson boasted, that he had taken the diamonds from the dunghill and he had set before us the true Christ not the Christ lost in the myth and legend of the New Testament documents. No, a human Christ, a great teacher, a wonderful example, a moral philosopher. Well, my friend, in the light of that, how urgently do we need to turn back to Revelation chapter one and study John's encounter with the Christ of Revelation, a Christ who triggers worship, who warrants fear, who commands obedience. You see, it's the world's MO to turn the creator into a creature, to remake God in their image, but it is the church's calling. It is the church's mission to preach and praise and present an exalted Christ to a mistaken world, a Christ who is God and man, A Christ who is the only mediator between God and man. A Christ who died but conquered death. A Christ who during his life suspended and manipulated the laws of nature in the doing of miracles. A Christ who warrants our worship. A Christ who demands repentance from every living thing. A Christ who Paul describes as our great God and Savior. By the way, little footnote. That's why you cannot market Christ. There's a lot of churches trying to market the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of books being written and palmed off as Christian literature that's encouraging the church to take a sample of society, to find out what your neighbors want. But it's so foolish. It's so futile. Because man left to himself cuts and pastes his own version of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to market Christ and the world's in the market for Christ, you're going to find they want a Christ, but they don't want him straight, not straight from the pages of Scripture. Not someone that warns worship demands obedience, calls for repentance. No, Christ cannot be marketed, but he can be declared. He can be presented. Men must adjust to him No more of this cut and paste Christ. So let's get back to the book of the Revelation and and, uh, the scene here in Revelation 1 verse 9 where John on the Lord's day at a particular time during his imprisonment on Patmos encounters the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ comes walking into John's worship experience. And Jesus speaks and it's the sound of a trumpet and John swings round, he swivels and there he's confronted with a, the, the, the risen Christ in all his glory. And the brilliance is like the noonday sun and John falls down like a dead man. This is not the gentle swooning that you see at some televangelist's meeting where people kind of fall into the arms of ushers and are gently laid down. There's no barking, there's no laughing in this scene as we find in the Toronto revival. No, this is a man silent and, and, and prostrate before the risen Christ, trembling and in fear of the one before whom he lies. Oh, God is good, but like Aslam in Narnia, he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. And, and we ch- started to challenge ourselves because today's worship is marked by familiarity. John's was marked by fear. Today's worship is geared for having a good time. John's experience of Christ scared him half to death. So let's go to the text. We started to look at John being overcome by majesty. And then John is overwhelmed by mercy. And then John is overtaken by ministry. But as John turns and faces the Christ of the book of the Revelation. He's like a man walking out of a dark room into the outdoors and into the brightness of the sun. John is overwhelmed by the brilliance of Christ's person and presence, stunned, traumatized. And when we asked ourselves, why? Why this reaction on John's part? Why does he fall down as a dead man? Why is that appropriate? Two reasons, Jesus' deity and John's depravity. Jesus' deity and John's depravity. We started to work our way through that first thought. John is overtaken and overshadowed by, by majesty. This is Christ unedited. This is Christ beyond the gospels. His incarnation is over. His humiliation is ended. The glory which he had has been restored. John got a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration, but now this is full-blown, full-bore, and it's overwhelming. And John encounters Christ, and he begins to describe Him for us. And it's, it's his best attempt because we saw he uses this word, like a lot. This is not an exact description, because what he saw almost defies description. He couldn't put it in words. In fact, if we were talking to John about this, I think he would be stumbling through his speech. Uh, It was overwhelming. And he begins to describe Christ. We have this kind of impressionist portrait of the Lord Jesus. And we saw a number of things. We saw that that Christ was described like the Son of Man, which, which speaks of the prophecy back in Daniel 7 of the coming Messiah who would reign and establish a kingdom that would be indestructible. We saw that his garment was to his feet. He had a sash across his chest, which seemed to indicate that this Son of Man was a high priest before God for mankind. We saw that entrance into God's presence, biblically speaking, is all was mediated, you have to come through another because we're not worthy in ourselves. And Jesus is our priest. Jesus is the one mediator. We saw his hair was white as snow, speaking of his agelessness, speaking of his eternal nature. We saw that he had eyes like flame of fire, which spoke of his omniscience and the fact that you and I cannot escape his holy intelligence. You can't trick Christ some kind of spiritual shell game where you're one thing on a Sunday and another thing on a Monday. He sees behind closed doors. He watches what we do late at night when no one's looking. After all, that is what integrity is, isn't it? It's what you are when no one's looking. But we're moving on now. We've got a fifth description Verse 15 of chapter 1 of the book of the Revelation, come with me to it. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. John is turning our thoughts towards Christ as the judge of sin. If you study the book of Revelation, you'll find throughout the Bible, a reference to feet is often a reference to subjugation. In fact, in Revelation 14, 19 through 20, we have a preview of the battle of Armageddon when Christ returns and crushes the nations who are in rebellion to him. And it says, he will trample upon them like a man in a wine press. In fact, in Revelation 19, we have this this picture of Christ's own vestments being splattered by the blood of his enemies. People have this idea that you know what, God got kinder and gentler as time went on. And so this kind of violent deity in the book of the Old Testament has kind of learned his lesson and changed his ways. And he's this kind of forgiving grandfather. Read the book of the Revelation. God is holy and just and sin will be punished. And Christ someday will come and put his enemies under his feet, feet as like Brass. And you'll find in the Old Testament that brass is often associated with judgment. We won't turn to it, but if you're taking notes, Exodus 38, verse 30, the brazen altar at the tabernacle in the temple where the offerings for sin were burned was made of what? Brass. The serpent held up in the wilderness that they had to look to was made of brass, which was a picture of Jesus who would be lifted up and draw all men unto himself. Brass and brass feet, I think here speak of the fact that Jesus is going to judge and subdue sin. And he'll do that inside the church, and he'll do that outside the church. We've already made reference to the fact that at the battle of Armageddon, he will make his enemies his footstool. He will tread them under his feet like a man in a wine press. But judgment begins in the house of God according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. And you're going to see that. Go to the first letter, Revelation 2, verse 4. What do we read? Nevertheless, I have this against you. Jesus is taking issue with his own people. Jesus is taking issue with churches. We often, and, and too often, emphasize, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? What happens when God's against you? Nobody can be for you in that sense. And here we have Christ in his church. We read about it again in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, as Jesus speaks to the church at Pergamos, but I have a few things against you. Jesus is amidst the candlesticks, amidst the church, and his focus is on judging sin among his people, disciplining his churches, calling his churches to renewed Obedience and and, and better service and purer motives. Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? Read the Gospels and show me where Christ closed the doors of a brothel or Christ barged into a gambling den and kind of sent them all packing. You'll find it nowhere, but you'll find them twice in the Gospels going into the temple and purifying the house of God. Because the time of judgment against the unbeliever is future. The time of judgment and discernment among his people is now. Christ cannot tolerate sin, especially in the church. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 3 of certain sins, he says this, let them not be named once among you. Not Once because you're a holy people. you know what bothers me today? As I talk to pastors and listen to what's going on across the church in general, I can't think of a sin that's found in the world that's not being found in the church today. God, forgive us. We're meant to be different. Christ is among us and his feet is like brass. Someone may ask me, Pastor, is there a difference between a Christian sin and a non-Christian sin? I say, yes, there is a difference. The Christian sin is worse. You say, Pastor, how do you come up with that? (laughs) Because when we sin, we abuse God's grace. Does God's grace abound that sin may more abound? No. We not only abuse God's grace, we sin against the indwelling spirit given to us to overcome the old man and to break free from the gravitational pull of our flesh. We shame the name of Christ. We cause the enemies of Christ to laugh at us. Why should they get saved? It doesn't produce anything different in us. Oh, it's worse when we sin. Christians aren't perfect, but they are meant to be different. We are meant to be a holy people distinct from the world in the way we handle our money, take care of our body, order our homes, raise our children, the way we act in the business world. Listen to these words by Steve Lawson. Do you hate weeds more in your neighbor's yard or in your own? Of course you hate them especially in your own yard. Do you hate cancer more in your neighbor's family or in your own family? You hate to see it in any family, but especially in your own. In the same way, Christ especially hates sin in his own spiritual family more so than in the world. Let's move on. We've got a sixth description. What do we read here? In verse 15 again, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Not spend a lot of time here, but there's a a thought you and I want to get. John is revealing the absolute authority of Christ, that his voice ought to drown out any other voice. He gets the mic all the time. And, and we see this because there's this idea that his voice is like many waters. Have you ever been to a place where there's many waters? Maybe some of you have. June and I just last year got to take the ride on the the maid of mist to the very foot of the Niagara Falls and the sound of the millions of gallons of water that pours over those falls every single moment of every single hour of every single day was deafening. That's the image. And that must have had a special meaning to John. Here he is. An exile on the Isle of Patmos and there wouldn't have been a day when he wouldn't have heard the waters crashing against the caves and the coastline of the little island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. The sound of the waters roaring and he was being reminded that when Christ speaks, he must listen and here we have these letters going out to the churches and the images. the church has got to listen. Christ is speaking, and he's got the voice of many waters. Skip over verse 16. We're going to come back to that, or at least skip over the first part of verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. But I want you to see here a neat description. And when uh, he had in his right hand seven stars, verse 16, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. That's a present participle, means out of his mouth constantly, all the time, went the two-edged sword. What's the image? I think the image is of uh, Christ's pronouncement of judgment upon church, his church's enemies inside and outside. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 12, this description is, is picked up and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, and that sword is directed towards those who are troubling that church with false doctrine. Thus, verse 15, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. This image is picked up in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15. We've got the image of Christ returning from heaven. Now I saw heaven open. Verse 11, behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written. that was no one, no one knew except him. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name was called the word of God. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with which he will strike the nations. My friend, you don't want the cut and paste Jesus Christ at all, or you'll miss this image of one who is God, who is among his people judging sin, but who will someday strike the very nations with the word of his mouth. Those who have rejected his word, The word that sounds like many waters. And so this is a description of Christ's pronouncement of judgment upon those hurting his people and upon those who indeed continue to fight his gospel.
0: You're listening to Know the Truth in our continuing series on the seven churches in Revelation called You've Got Mail. And if you tuned in late to this message, you can replay it online at ktt.org. And Pastor Philip will be back in a moment, so keep listening. At Know the Truth, we teach God's Word with boldness, clarity, and conviction so that believers are encouraged daily, equipped to serve and engaged to share the gospel wherever they go. But we can't do it without your help. We rely on the generosity of listeners like you to bring these Bible studies to your station every Monday through Friday and even on weekends. And when you give a generous one-time gift or sign up for a monthly auto-gift, you help keep Know the Truth on the air so that listeners can continue growing in their faith. You'll also receive helpful resources to help you in your own faith walk, too. And when you give any amount to Know the Truth in June, you'll receive the book Authentic Influencer, The Barnabas Way of Shaping Lives for Jesus. Every follower of Jesus can be inspired, instructed, and mobilized to influence the world from right where you are. In fact, it's everyday believers who are tasked by Jesus himself to bring godly influence to the world. And this book will show you how you can do so by studying the impactful life of Barnabas. It's yours with a gift of any amount. Call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. Now, with a few closing remarks, here again is Pastor Philip. Hey, Philip de again. So glad to have you with us today. I wanted to take a moment to
1: tell you how you can stay connected with Know the Truth. We'd love for you to become part of our growing online community, a group of believers who are dedicated to knowing the truth and making the truth known through clear and convicting Bible teaching. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and stay up to date with exciting news, transformational stories, events, and inspiration for your daily walk of faith. Also, be sure to visit us online at ktt.org. There you'll be able to plug in to many of our resources designed to encourage, engage, and equip you as a believer to live a successful life for God's glory and the extension of His kingdom. You'll find books, guides, and other helpful resources. And if you need a way to listen to messages while out and about, you can download the KTT app or the KTT podcast. Just search the app or podcast store on your mobile
0: device for
1: Know the Truth
0: with Philip DeCourcy. Thank you, Philip. And you'll find links to these resources and more at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Come back tomorrow when Philip concludes today's message titled, Holy Terror. That'll be Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free.